0: Please open your Bibles to the book of Ezra, the third chapter. We are beginning our fifth week of the study of Ezra and Nehemiah. And this week we turn to the beginning of chapter three. You'll remember that chapter one was the account of the decree of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the Jews were to be released from their exile and to return to their homeland and specifically to rebuild Jerusalem and the temple of their God. And then chapter 2 is an account of the return itself, including the names and the lineage of those who returned and their gifts toward the restoration of the temple. Chapter 3, then, here, is the commencing of that work as the people of God first set up the altar that is the center of the true worship of the living God, the altar that Jehovah commanded through his servant Moses. And these are the details of that restoration. Let's read and hear the word of God, which is eternally true, Ezra 3, 1-9. Now, when the seventh month came and the sons of Israel were in the cities, the people gathered together as one man to Jerusalem. Then Jeshua, the son of Jozadak and his brothers, the priests, and Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and his brothers, "...arose and built the altar of the God of Israel to offer burnt offerings on it, as it is written in the law of Moses, the man of God. So they set up the altar on its foundation, for they were terrified because of the peoples of the lands. And they offered burnt offerings on it to the Lord, burnt offerings morning and evening." They celebrated the Feast of Booths as it is written and offered the fixed number of burnt offerings daily according to the ordinance as each day required. And afterward there was a continual burnt offering also for the new moons and for all the fixed festivals of the Lord that were consecrated and from everyone who offered a free will offering to the Lord. From the first day of the seventh month they began to offer burnt offerings to the Lord But the foundation of the temple of the Lord had not been laid. Then they gave money to the masons and carpenters and food, drink, and oil to the Sidonians and to the Tyrians to bring cedar wood from Lebanon to the sea at Joppa according to the permission they had from Cyrus, king of Persia. Now in the second year of their coming to the house of God at Jerusalem in the second month, Zerubbabel the son of Shealtiel, and Jeshua the son of Jozadak and the rest of their brothers, the priests and the Levites. And all who came from the captivity to Jerusalem began the work and appointed the Levites from twenty years and older to oversee the work of the house of the Lord. Then Jeshua with his sons and brothers stood united with Cadmiel and his sons, the sons of Judah and the sons of Hanadad, with their sons and brothers, the Levites, to oversee the workmen in the temple of God. This is the word of God and it is eternally true. Now, we're studying this because we're in the middle of building. We're in the middle of building a place of worship. Uh, Our worship is very different from the worship of the Old Testament. We'll get into that more at the end of the sermon. Nevertheless, it is what we're building. It is a worship, a place of worship, a worship center, a house of worship, uh, a sanctuary, a place where it is dedicated to the glory of Jesus Christ and where the people of God can be united in that glory and that worship. Now, the Jews that we're looking at and reading about, the Jews who have returned to their homeland have been there now for just a few months. They're settled in different cities that are scattered about the homeland. And when the seventh month arrives, what do they do? Well, when the seventh month arrives, they come together. They are united. It says in verse 1, Now, when the seventh month came, and the sons of Israel were in the cities, what? The people gathered together, how? As one man to Jerusalem. Now, this morning, I would like to study together the unity of the people of God and ask of the Holy Scriptures what it was that produced such unity that it could be said of them that they gathered together as one man to Jerusalem. And we're going to look at three factors, three causes of their unity. First, they were united by terror. Second, they were united by obedience and worship. And third, they were united by Jesus Christ. Now, I don't think any of you will take issue with the second uh, cause of their unity, but probably the first one strikes you as a little strange. And probably the third one, you're thinking, where did that come from? But here they are. They were united by terror number one by obedience and worship, number two, and by Jesus Christ, number three. All right, first the interesting one, terror. They were united by terror. You saw this strange verse in chapter three from which we have received the title for our sermon this morning. It says in verse three, so they set up the altar on its foundation for why? For they were terrified because of the peoples of the land. And they offered burnt offerings on it to the Lord, burnt offerings morning and evening. Now we read here that the people were terrified by the peoples of the lands. Who were these peoples of the lands and why did they cause such terror? Now this will be an increasingly important question as we go through Ezra and Nehemiah because a lot of the plot depends upon the opposition of the peoples of the land to the work of rebuilding the temple and rebuilding Jerusalem. But who were these peoples? Well, we don't know. There are many uh, guesses. Uh, We do believe that the animosity, and that might be a euphemism, the hatred that prevails between the Samaritans and the Jews at the time of Christ is the result of what begins here, namely the mixing together of the people who had never left Israel, who had never left the promised land, and the people who had left and then came back. Now, why such hatred? Well, it can be for a variety of reasons. Um, number one, probably the people that were in the land, living in the land at the time, were mongrels. They were, uh, they were not pure blood. They had uh, probably a combination of Jewish and, and Gentile origins or Jewish and other nation origins. They uh, could not lay claim to being pure-bred Jews, all right? And so uh, that would be one source of tension. Another source of tension would be the fact that it's likely that they, being a people, in other words, being humans, were not devoid of worship. It's a law of human nature that we worship. The question is what we worship. And uh, if you look at, for instance, the, the thing I take the most interest in, which is the shared morality of the, uh, the information class in our country, what do they worship? Well, the information class, in other words, the, the chattering met class, the people that make their living off leading us, normally their worship is education and enlightenment. They, they like to think of themselves as being a very enlightened people. And so their sacraments are things like telling you you shouldn't litter, telling you to wear a safety belt, telling you to have your children sitting in a booster seat, And so all these laws are made which make them feel like they're progressive and enlightened and have created a safe environment for everybody. Now, I'm not against safety. But this is the worship of our nation. And about every ten years or so, we'll have a new morality that comes up. For instance, smoking. Uh, And everybody will get together and say, well, this should be outlawed. Nobody should do this. For me, the coming of age was littering. When I was a young man, all of a sudden, there was this amazing thing where we all decided that we were going to get rid of littering. And so I did it myself. I still do it. If I see somebody litter, I'll hunk the horn at them, you know. And so as a nation, the question is not whether we'll worship. We will. We'll worship. Um, but the question is, who will we worship? What will we worship? Will we worship ourselves, our progressive ideas, our, our safe environment, our... Our uh, diversity, our pluralism, uh, PhDs, will we worship um, our cars? (laughs) We were driving somewhere recently and, you know, we're driving by this place. I don't even remember where it was, but as we drove by, there was this tiny, tiny little, disgusting, dirty, messy, gross house. You know, it's like somebody had, you know, taken a pile of mud and thrown it through the air and it landed and went splat and there's where people lived, right? But out in front of that house was a pickup truck and there was nothing gross about the pickup truck. It was beautiful. It was shiny. It was clean. There wasn't a dent on it and there was a man standing polishing his pickup truck. And this is very, very clear that that man worshipped that truck and that what happened in the house didn't really matter to him. You understand this? All right, we do worship. The question is, what will worship? The question is, who will we worship? The question is, where will we worship? You can't take religion out of man. So here these people are. They're, they're probably a mixed race a mixed group. They're the ones that have been left behind in the exile and they're in the land and certainly they worship. So then the question is where did they worship? Well, we know the place they didn't worship was there in the, the old site of the temple on the old place where the altar was built because that's where this new altar is built. And so, it's likely that they were worshipping in ways that were not in conformity with what God had commanded. They probably thought that what really mattered was their hearts before God. You know, it doesn't really matter whether their hearts uh, are in conformity with the specifics. What matters is that their hearts mean well. All right? You've heard the expression, the road to hell is paved with good intentions. Well, that goes completely against the grain with, with us because... As Bible-believing 21st century Americans, what we really think matters is only the heart. And every time we read the story in the Old Testament about how uh, the guys were carrying the ark and they reached out to study it so it wouldn't fall on the ground, and they were struck dead, we go, where did that come from? Doesn't God see their hearts? Doesn't he know they were only trying? And it looks like even David responded that way because David seemed to have gotten in a bit of a snit over that. And then, you you know, you think about Nadab and Abihu who didn't follow the scrupulous letter of the law of God about uh, incense and how they were to burn their fires, right? They're struck dead. And we go to Ananias and Sapphira. So here's the theme. The theme is God is specific. And so here you have one group that's in the land. They're a bit mongrel probably. They're, 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 they're not worshipping God the way he commands because they're not there in Jerusalem at the site of the temple with an altar. We don't know where they are, what they're doing, but probably it's the equivalent of what you see all through the Old Testament where the kings are summed up as those who did tear down the high places. In other words, they're probably out in their local city, their local town, and they've gone up to a high place, a place that seems closer to heaven, and they've erected an altar there, and they have a decentralized worship. You know, and again, we could easily see ourselves going along with this because we don't like centralization, we don't like Washington being what determines everything, with states' rights and everything, and we certainly don't like denominations. You know, centralized worship, general assembly. You know, it just seems, you know, I mean, who needs that? Again, just our hearts, me and God, or maybe me and Rob and God or me and Rob and Catherine and his children, me and Meryl and, and me and my mother, and, and but us, you know, those of us that know each other and like each other. And so what else happened? Well, you've got probably mixed race. You've got probably mixed up worship procedures. And then you have what everybody ought to know who's ever been in a club or a church. And that is you've got the old timer and the new timer conflict, right? Hey, we were here before you were born, you know? You know, we were worshiping the true God here before you while you were wet behind the ears. And here you come gallivanting in here, acting as if you own the place. You know? Who are you? You know, go to the back. In time you'll move up front, like Pastor Bailey and his family. But put in your time first, you know? Luke's you know, you'll move up eventually, but but do your time. You know, It's sitting in the back row. I will never forget a congregational meeting where, um, you know, the proverb that says something to the effect that uh, that uh, an empty stall is clean, but it doesn't produce any income. All right. And it is true, you, you don't have to clean a stall that doesn't have a horse or an ox or a cow in it, but you also don't get milk, right? And so here was a church up in Wisconsin where all of a sudden people started coming to the church and pretty soon there were children there and sometimes the children would write on the walls and, and, and have to be taken out of the service to be spanked and things like that, you know? And it was disrupting. And so the tension built and there came a congregational meeting. and. Uh, I'll never forget this older man. Who the irony of the fact was the irony of the situation was the fact that he, um, until I came, he never ever ever came to church, never. And then when I came, he started coming. But his name had already been on the membership list, so I think he thought he was an old timer. So we come to the congregational meeting, and the man stands up, and you know it's when the fr- you know everything is intense, and he stands up. And um, he he sort of casts his eye across the crowd, and he says, um, uh, "Now I'm going to forget what were his exact words. It wasn't old timers and new timers. Oh, I know what it was. He he just he just took all these new people, and he said, you know, you know." Who cares about these Johnny-come-latelys? That was the word. Johnny-come-latelys, you know. And they were just cast out. It just didn't matter to him all these Johnny-come-latelys. Well, that's probably a lot of the tension that we'll see developing between Ezra and Nehemiah. They were just all Johnny-come-latelys, you know. They'd gone off to another nation. They'd inherited their habits, their wealth. You know, they were bringing corrupt money into the the promised land. You know, the money and, and the wealth of Cyrus, and their neighbors, you remember that, that they, that they had, just like the Israelites when they left Egypt, they had all this money given to them by, by these people of this pagan land. And he's like, look, guys, we were here before you ever had heard of Jerusalem. That's an exaggeration. You get the point. And this, you know, fit in. Fit in, right? Now, how intense was it? It was much more intense than any congregational meeting I've been a part of. Uh, sometimes we... Uh, we look at what goes on in the church and we think it's awful, but there's nothing like the tension that was here. Nothing like it. Why? Well, because of the little word. What's the word? It says in verse 3, they were what? They were terrified. Why were they terrified? You don't get terrified because you think somebody's going to block you from using the drinking fountain after church or because they won't serve you coffee as quickly as you want it or because they won't shake your hand, won't give you a bulletin, or because you'll sit in their seat and they'll say, that's my seat. You get terrified because there's a threat to your life or the life of your loved ones. Whatever was going on, it was so intense that they believed that their very lives were in danger. And so what happens? Well, let's recognize that these people who had come back from exile and who wished to honor God, these new-timers, these Johnny-come-latelys were absolutely petrified. They were were terror-stricken by the threat that was posed by the peoples of the lands, by the old-timers. Now, why would I then say that terror produced unity? Well, are you aware of any other place in the Bible that terror produces unity? Now, you could think of many places, and this isn't a game to see if you can think what I'm thinking, but there is a place I'm thinking of, and that is, would you turn with me to Psalm 73? I immediately thought of this in in, in this text. Because if you can put yourself in the position of these Johnny-come-latelys, these news you know, their existence must have been pretty marginal. They had not had generations to set up wealth and barns and homes. Their city was in shambles. Their temple was destroyed. They didn't even have an altar. All right? And now their lives are under threat. So, you know, they're not in a position to be proud. And it looks to them as if they're impotent, they're powerless to stand up against the people that are causing them terror, right? And it often does feel this way to the godly, that we are completely at the mercy of the wicked. And and that's the meditation of this psalm. A psalm of Asa. surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet came close to stumbling. My steps had almost slipped. For why? I was envious of the arrogant as I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For there are no pains in their death and their body is fat. They are not in trouble as other men. They were terrified. And they look out at these wicked old-timers who are threatening their lives and the lives of their ones. And they say... They're not in trouble as other men, nor are they plagued like mankind. Therefore, pride is their necklace. The garment of violence covers them. You know, they're threatening to kill us. And there's no consequences, God. Their eye bulges from fatness. The imaginations of their heart run riot. They mock and wickedly speak of oppression. Oppression. They speak from on high. They have set their mouth against the heavens, and their tongue parades through the earth. Therefore, his people return to this place, and waters of abundance are drunk by them. They say, how does God know? And is there knowledge with the Most High? Behold, these are the wicked. And always at ease they have increased in wealth. You see, this is what the feeling would be. As they look at their neighbors, these old-timers, they're terrorized. It looks to them like there are no account- there's never an accounting for the wicked. They don't ever have to worry that God will hold them accountable for threatening oppression. That God will take away the fatness. that even bulges out their eyes. They mutter. They're up on high. They, they, they despise us. I always think of this as the psalm of Ted Turner. Alright? Absolutely nothing to worry about except maybe his wife, Jane Fonda, will become a Christian. Of course, a Christian who we wish someone would instruct her a little bit on some details, minor details, I say facetiously. But nevertheless, we're not on Jane Fonda. We're on Ted Turner. And and here we have Ted Turner. He struts. You know, his team wins the World Series. Just paraphrase it. You know, and he even seems to maybe be coming out of the AOL uh, Time Warner thing fairly clean compared to the rest of them. And he makes fun of Christians, and particularly Bible believing Christians. And so here the Israelites are. They're looking around and they've returned from exile. They're terrorized. And then here's the temptation. Look at it. Verse 14 or 15. No, no, 13. Excuse me. Surely in vain I have kept my heart pure and washed my hands in innocence. For I have been stricken all day long and chastened every morning. And so you see what's going on here? Threatening oppression. Life is in danger. The wicked are parading. They have absolutely no shame. They have absolutely no fear. They don't believe God sees. And they are about to to wipe out the righteous. And so the temptation of the righteous is always this. The temptation of the righteous is to say, What good is righteousness? What good is it to honor God? What good is it that my God is Jehovah and their God is Baal? Who cares? Baal gives them lots of good things. And what do I get? And so he's tempted. He says, in vain I've kept my heart pure and washed my hands in innocence. Because why? It's gotten me nothing. But then look at verse 15. If I had said, I will speak this. In other words, if I talked like that, Behold, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. In other words, hey, listen, that's what I was thinking. And if I had talked that way in front of the people of God, I would have betrayed them. I would have betrayed the children of God. And then what happens? When I pondered to understand, when I sat down I put my thinking cap on, I tried to say, what is going on here? It was troublesome in my sight until I came into the sanctuary of God. And then I perceive their end. You see that? Terror stricken. They're being oppressed. The wicked say, God can't see what we're doing to these righteous ones. The righteous ones are brought so low that they say, what has it gotten me to be righteous and innocent? It's absolutely worthless. The dead turners of this world laugh at me and they just go on getting richer and their eyes keep bulging out and they know God doesn't see them. And so, what good is righteousness? Ah, if I had spoken this way in the people of God, I would have harmed the children of God. And so, when I sat down and tried to think about this, it was a pain. And then... I came into the sanctuary of God and then I perceived therein. Isn't it something? That here you have the same situation. Oppression, terror, frustration, depression, uh, a lack of faith, doubt, unbelief, questioning. Until what? Until they come into where? Did you see it? Until they came where? Not until they went into their prayer closet. Not until they opened their Bible and had their family or or personal devotions. But it says what? Until I came where? Until I came into the sanctuary of God. And then I perceived their end. People don't think that words in the Bible don't matter. Brothers and sisters, words matter to God. Every single word of Scripture is inspired God didn't have men write what came to their own inclinations, what they thought might be helpful to religious people. Holy men of old wrote as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. Not one thing that's in this book came from a man's inclination. It's true that God didn't despise his personality as he wrote, and each personality of each author comes through. But every word matters. And here it says, under God's inspiration that everything looked bleak and he was ready to throw in the towel. He was ready to scandalize the people of the church and especially the, the, the weak and the innocent. He was prepared to be a stumbling block to the little ones until he came into the sanctuary of God. Until he came to corporate worship. Okay? And then what happened? And it's very interesting. We would think, and then I understood that Every day and every way, the world would life would get better and better for me and for my children. Now that's true for the people of God, but that's not what comforted him. Look at what comforted him. Actually, look at what comforted him. He says, "Then I perceived their end. Surely you set them in slippery places. You cast them down to destruction. How they are destroyed in a moment!" They are utterly swept away by sudden terrors like a dream when one awakes, O Lord, when aroused. You will despise their form. Isn't this interesting? (laughs) Okay, think about this, right? We get up in the morning and we try to decide what we're going to do. It's Sunday. We have the New York Times or the the Bloomington Herald Times or the Indianapolis Star. Um, We've got National Public Radio. We've got Meet the Press on television, all right? Sunday evening. We've got 60 minutes. And we think, well, on the one hand, it would be very interesting. And on the other hand, it would be very boring. Do you think the man that came into the sanctuary and as he came into the corporate worship saw the end of the wicked, do you think that man was bored when he had that vision? What has happened to worship that you are not given the privilege of seeing the end of the wicked as an act of corporate worship. I mean, It's it's, it's completely foreign to any concept that any of us have of worship that we would be in desperate straits, ready to throw in the towel on God, ready to believe that Ted Turner is going to be victorious and that he's right to promote the killing of unborn children, threatening oppression, blood all over the place, eyes bulging with fatness, married to a fox, Getting old in beauty. He has farms out west. He's got buffalo. He's got everything he wants, right? And we're ready to throw in the towel on godliness. And then all of a sudden, we don't quite say it yet. We wait a moment and then we enter the sanctuary of God. And then we are helped. And how are we helped? In the sanctuary of God, we are given a picture of the end of the wicked. Now, come on. Be honest with me. Have one of you ever hoped that in worship you would be given a picture of the end of the wicked? How to choose a church, you know, a little pamphlet, you know. <laughs> you know? Do they have coffee when you walk in? Do they greet you? You know, do you see that the pastor loves his wife and his wife loves him? Is there a sense of proportion? You know, can he make a joke? You know, And will he present you a picture of hell? Doesn't fit, does it? What do you think it would be like if you were to go out to the churches of this land and, and, and examine them under the criteria of how many of them are given a picture from the pulpit in worship of the end of the wicked? Do you know, and Curtis can vouch for this, do you know the time that I have most appreciated Curtis Cook in this church? Do any of you remember the time he got up and sang the prophetic piece from the Messiah? I, I want to say the nation's rage. Was that what it was? Donna, do you remember what it was? And I need to tell you it was one intense prophetic picture of the end of the wicked. And all of a sudden, I remember my heart was strengthened. Why? Not because I was gloating. Yep, there they go. They're getting their just desserts. That wasn't it. What is it about the end of the wicked that causes our hearts to be strengthened? What is it? You know what it is? It's because then we see the character of God when we see that God will not tolerate those who defy Him, that He will consume them, that He has fixed a place that for eternity they will be in torment, conscious, aware torment that they will never be able to go unconscious and pass out to get away from it. That they won't be able to fall asleep and forget their depression. That God has determined that those who defy and kill His Son will for all eternity be in torment. Then you don't think about the torment of the wicked. You think about what? You think about the glory of God. Isn't that what children want when they have a weak and pathetic father who can't stand up to the mother and the children think, for heaven's sakes, man, be a man! You know? The children want to see the home ordered. Because why? Because written in the hearts of children is the character of God. Nobody likes an oppressive society. Everybody senses the injustice. This was a great vision of American political theory. Why? Because our forefathers understood that God has fixed the time when all men will be judged and that here on this earth there should be a premonition at least. There should be a teaching. There should be a picture. There should be something that begins to show the wicked of what the coming judgment will be. And so here this poor man is he's he's weighed down and he just is depressed and discouraged and he sees no justice on this earth. But his heart cries out for it. And he's ready to throw in the towel. And then all of a sudden, he says, if I'd speak in this way, I would have harmed the little ones. And then, I came into the sanctuary of God and I saw the end of the wicked. And so here the people of God are. They're terror stricken. And so what do they do? They come to the house of God. Now the house of God is broken down. The foundations are destroyed, let alone the superstructure. And so what do they do? They don't wait until the temple was there, do they? Right away, they begin to worship. Right away, they begin to worship. And even though there's no wall and there's no covering and all of the different parts of the structure aren't ordered according to God's command, they take their hands and they take stones that are field stones, not cut stones, but field stones, and they build an altar. And what do they do? In the seventh month, they begin to worship God. So the terror drives them to worship Worship unites them. And the second thing is they're not just united by the terror, but then they're united by the worship. And that worship is not just a sort of heart means well, good intentions, sort of me and Jesus, and let's get together and sing some choruses. It only takes a spark to get a fire going. And soon all those around can warm up to its glowing. That's how it is with God's love. Once you experience it, you want to sing, it's fresh like spring, you want to pass it on. Or whatever it goes (laughs) in years. Okay, now that's a fine song for a campfire. But what is corporate worship? Is it just that our hearts are united in sort of inclination, sort of about Jesus in a sort of kind of way at a sort of kind of time? You know? No. What does it say? It says now what? When the seventh month came, They were united by terror and then they were united in worship and by obedience and worship because it says the seventh month. Now, why does it say the seventh month? Does anybody have any idea? Think, why the seventh month? Well, the reason is the seventh month was the holiest month in the 12 months of their life together as as a people. It was the month that had more holy days than any other month. It started with the new year and then it went into the feast or the festival of trumpets and then it went into the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur, and then it went into the festival or the Feast of Tabernacles or booths, Tabernacles, Booths, Festival, Feast, their parallel construction. And that was the time you remember when they would act as if they were out in the wilderness again depending upon God. they go out in tents. If you go into a city during this time, you will see on the fire escapes behind buildings, you'll see uh, material hung. And the Jews are out on the fire escapes at night, sleeping in in, in these places where they have cloths hung. All right? And it's, it's their time to remember God's provision when they were in the wilderness. So the seventh month arrived about six months after they had returned It was the month of Tishri. It was the most important life in the people of God's uh, holy days. And it was a time when they celebrated these festivals, the Feast of Trumpets, Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, and the Feast of Tabernacles. So here they are. They're terror-stricken. What do they do? They come together. Why do they come together? Why do they come to Jerusalem? Again, do you remember? It's because God had decreed that Jerusalem was to be the place where they came to worship. Again, they didn't just willy-nilly gather in their individual towns. They did precisely what God said. They came to the place that God had appointed, and they worshipped unified. And then they didn't just worship at the place that he commanded, but they worshipped at the time. It was the seventh month. They were keeping track of the calendar and observing days and seasons. And then what did they do? They observed the specific holy days that he had commanded and in the specific way he had commanded you see, everything about them was repressed and legalistic. You know, they were meticulous. In other words, they obeyed God. They didn't think that what mattered to God was only the inclinations of their hearts. And so they set up high places in their town. It was never so more convenient. <laughs> now they came to Jerusalem. And when they came to Jerusalem, they didn't come when the most fitting time was, you know, the time after their wife had given birth to the child, when they could travel without placing the wife in jeopardy, all right? Or after the contract had been fulfilled and they had a little free time before the next contract started. Now, seventh month, the specific days that God had commanded, they obeyed him, all right? And if you'll read through the text, you'll see that again and again and again, it shows that they were quite neurotic in their obedience. They were counting times, counting days, counting sacrifices. Uh, they were very specific in the way that they did it. Isn't that interesting? Um, if you look at the text, you'll see uh, all throughout it what it says. Um, Look at it in verse 4 for instance they celebrate feast of booths and how do they celebrate it says what what does it say it says as it is written you see and then look next offered what the fixed number you see this you pass over when you read these things but it's as it is written the fixed number daily and then the end of the verse according to the ordinance okay and then the end of the verse as each day required and this is what you'll see all through the text every single thing they do is according to the command of God. Okay? Now, what's the application? Well, the application is very clear. Terror drives them together to corporate worship, but that corporate worship doesn't unite them unless it's done how. I mean, think of the corporate worship at the bottom of Mount Sinai. Corporate worship, people of God, did it unite them? No. What happened? They went through the camp and they killed as God's judgment. It wasn't a uniting service, right? It was a dividing service where some had to die because of participation. What about the offering of Ananias and Sapphira in corporate worship? Did it unite them? No. What about Nadab and Abihu? Did it unite them? No. What about straightening the ark? Did that unite them? No. And even, what about Michael and David? When he's dancing in front of all the young women of Israel, does it unite him with his wife? No. You see, worship, if it isn't according to God's plan, it doesn't unite. It brings judgment. Okay? And worship, if it includes people whose hearts are not in agreement with God, and who have no fear of God, it doesn't unite them. They just look at worship and they say, these guys are making idiots of themselves. Don't they have any self-respect? Here they are jumping up and down and clapping in worship. Don't they know that's not permitted? And she despised her husband because he was making an idiot of himself in front of the young women of Israel, and she had her position to maintain and her dignity to protect They did everything precisely as they were commanded. And as they were obedient, doctrinally, specifically, some would say neurotically, all right, as they did that, then they became one. And you see, the truth is always there, that the church is not united by seeking peace and unity. That's what the university does. They never stop talking about seeking unity amidst diversity. All right? They'll never get it. They'll just repress more deeply the prejudices that they have. But in the body of Christ, when we seek the unity of obedience to God and of the only true God, not false gods and idols, when we seek that unity... Of obedience, then there will be unity of relationships. This is why the statement in the church history is always the peace, the unity, and the purity of the church. We never seek the peace of the church. In fact, we have to constantly fight against seeking the peace of the church. Why? Not because we don't like peace, but because we know, just like Lewis said about happiness, happiness is the one thing you'll never get by seeking it. Peace is the one thing you'll never get by seeking it. If you seek it alone. If it's the only good that you're aiming at, you'll never, ever, ever get it. The only way to get peace is to seek to obey God. And as you seek obedience, as you seek purity of doctrine, purity of practice, as you seek to honor the Word of God first, then what happens? There's this glorious unity that develops. We had an evening um, exercise time, although that's not what it was called. It was a recreation time or something. And uh, in the recreation time, one of the things we did was, uh, we, I should say they, because I sat and watched, they had a tug-of-war. Everybody's milling around on the field, and, you know, somebody says, okay, pull the line out so the line gets straight, and everybody's milling around. And then all of a sudden, two sides come up to the line, up to the rope, and take their positions and begin to pull. All of a sudden, there's unity. Why? They're all pulling in the same direction. Why? Because there is a rope there that they have to have their hands on to help. Now, if you'll picture, it's a crass illustration, but if you'll picture the Bible and all of its instructions for God's people as that rope, when we join our hands on that rope and we pull in the same direction, and as long as somebody's pulling in the direction with us, even though he might be 2 feet tall and weigh 30 pounds, or he might be 6'8 and weigh 350 pounds, he has a place. He may have only one hand because the other one might have been taken off in the war. He's pulling. He's pulling in the right direction. He might have to use his teeth because he doesn't have any arms. He's pulling in the right direction. All right? He might have uh, whatever that disease is where you keep falling asleep every now and then. So he might be at the rope and he might like doze for a while. And then he wakes up and he yanks. All right? He's pulling. You see, there's a perfect unity. Because the Spirit of God through the Word of God and the character of God and our God, not their God, not any God, our God, the only true God, it creates a beautiful unity in the church. The unity of terror, the unity of obedience and worship. Doing everything that the Bible commands. And then finally, I said, I promised that I would end with Jesus Christ. Now, where do I get Jesus Christ? Well, look at the sacrifices. Just picture them in your mind. What sometimes is referred to is that riot of blood in the Old Testament. Now, what do the sacrifices point to? Well, they point to two things. You remember in the New Testament, it says that the Holy Spirit, when He ministers, that He will convince us and convict us of sin, and of righteousness, and of judgment. you remember that? Now, what does all this riot of blood do to us? We see these animals with their necks slit and the blood being poured out on the ground and then them being consumed in the fire. What does that say to us? Well, it should say, it should convince us by the power of the Holy Spirit of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. How sin? Well, look, why is somebody dying? Why is an animal losing its life? Does God delight in the suffering of dumb creatures? No. We know in Nineveh it says that God cared about even the animals of Nineveh and didn't want them to be judged. We know that Jesus says that a sparrow doesn't fall without God's awareness. So why would God have animals have their throats slit, have their blood poured on the ground, and have them consumed on an altar? Because that is a picture to us of His judgment on all unrighteousness. On every creature that shakes his fist in the face of God and says, I will defy the living God. What happens? What happens is that their end is coming. And every time one of these animals is killed and their body is sacrificed and consumed... Devoted to God, alright, every time this happens, this reminds us of what? The fact that we cannot stand before a holy God, and that there must be a sacrifice for forgiveness of sins. Without the shedding of the blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. And so the first thing you're forced to, to look at is sin. What else could justify such a riot of blood? And then the second thing that you're reminded of as you look at that animal is that if that animal being sacrificed is pleasing to God, either it's that the animal itself is able to purchase redemption for us and forgiveness of sins, or that the animal points somewhere. And all of us believe that those Israelites weren't saved because they were obedient to God and did the sacrifice thing. When has obedience ever purchased salvation for us? Have you tried? Have you tried to obey God? You know that the first step towards salvation is you try. And as you try, what happens? It's absolutely hopeless. If you've really tried, you know that there's no way you can ever please God. All our righteousness is is menstrual rags. The best we can muster is filthy. And so it wasn't that they were doing everything they were supposed to do and so God said, all right, you've been obedient, then I'll save you. But it was that as they performed the details of worship as God commanded, what happened? Their attention was driven where? Where was it driven? It was driven to the Lamb of God whose blood was shed for the forgiveness of sins. The Lamb of God. The perfect Lamb of God. And all that riot of blood was pointing to the precious blood of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, whose blood purchases forgiveness of sins to all who look to Him. As Moses was lifted up in the wilderness, so the Son of Man will be lifted up, that all who look to Him will be saved. You see? So here we are in the Old Testament. They're terror-stricken. They go out and they go to Jerusalem. They go in the seventh month. They go on the days they're supposed to. They take the animals. They kill them. And as they kill these animals, what happens? Their attention is driven to the One who God would provide as a perfect sacrifice. Their attention is driven forward to the coming One, the Messiah. The One, it says in the book of Isaiah, the 53rd chapter that He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our sin was upon Him. And by His stripes we shall be healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to His own way. And the Lord hath laid on Him the iniquity of us all. And then what happens? Guess what? having confessed their need, having been terror-stricken at what faced them, having seen their sinfulness, having read the Word, what they were supposed to do, they got in lockstep with one another. They went to Jerusalem. They went to the very place that the temple had been built. They went to the very place that the altar had stood. And they began a riot of blood. And from the time they began it, they consistently carried it out. Not because they were sadists. Not because they wanted to see the suffering of the animals. But because God had decreed that as they were faithful and obedient to every specific thing, that He would then lead their attention to the Lord Jesus Christ and to His blood. And that they would realize that God is a merciful God who provides for our forgiveness of sins. That all those who come to Him will never cast out that yes, we are wicked and and filthy, as that altar must have been, as the consequences of sin spilled all over it. And yet God has decreed that He will be satisfied as we are obedient and look to the coming one, the Lamb of God, who taketh away the sins of the world. Unity is something we all want. You wonder, why in the world did Pastor Bailey talk about unity and and have all this stuff come out of unity? Well, I did it? Because that's what you want. Everybody wants peace and unity. And so you use that as a hook. Okay, we all want peace and unity. Okay, here, terror, okay, obedient worship, and Jesus Christ. But what do we really want? We don't want unity. What we really want is Jesus Christ. What we really want is the forgiveness of our sins. And when we get to heaven, what will we really delight in it that will give the unity of heaven, the light of heaven, the sun of heaven, the moon of heaven, that will give heaven everything that it needs? It will be our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray.